0: Good morning. Right. Let's begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we again are thankful to call you our Father and to come together and study your Word. We ask that your Spirit will enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, and enable us to be effective agents for your kingdom in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We're doing lesson four in the quarterly, the promise, the everla- uh, God's everlasting covenant. What is a covenant? <laughs> a promise. An agreement. An agreement. Okay, an agreement. I like that. A contract? Is it a contract? And what about the everlasting covenant? The everlasting you no, know, A covenant's an agreement. What's the everlasting Is it also an agreement? It's an agreement that God carries through. So what is this everlasting covenant? God covenants or agrees or commits or contracts to do something that we need. And we agree and we're required to do something in order for the covenant or agreement to be fulfilled in our lives. God is going to save man. We have to agree to accept. God's going to save man. That's the big picture of what it is. So God has agreed to provide Jesus, send Jesus to be our savior and through Jesus deliver humans from sin, restore planet earth to perfection, establish an everlasting kingdom, give the earth to Abraham's descendants and Christ rule as supreme ruler. That's what God has covenanted to do. Abraham, what did Abraham agree to? What was Abraham's role? Trust. 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 And follow his directions. Trust and follow. Is this a legal contract? Or simply the expression of an agreement that reality requires for salvation to occur? Is marriage a covenant relationship? An a covenant agreement? Yes. Is it? Okay. And as God designed marriage, notice I say that as God designed marriage, not as the United States Supreme Court rules, okay, as God designed marriage, was it a legal contract? No. 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 What kind of agreement or covenant is marriage as God designed? Did Adam and Eve go to the county court, apply for a license, pay a fee, and contract responsibilities? Or was it an agreement of self-sacrificial commitment of trust to each other? Yes. In good faith. In good faith. Oh, that's good. And is marriage used as a metaphor in Scripture for the relationship between Christ and the church. Yes, God's coming for his bride. And Yes, Christ and the bride. Does that give you insight into the covenant of grace? The covenant of marriage, metaphor for salvation, does it give you an insight into the covenant of grace? It's not a legal thing. It's a commitment in relationship. Russell? Can we say both of them are an atonement and a one A unity, yes. Both two shall become one Um, as we come back into... Yeah, I like that very much. Yeah. So the New Covenant is about healing, saving, restoring sinners, bringing them back into one mint or unity with God and how God built his universe. So what is required... What is the requirements in order for this covenant to be realized for sinners to be saved? I'm going to give you some, some things. Is faith or trust required? Yes. Yes. yes, it is. Faith or trust in God is the means whereby the requirements of salvation are applied into the believer. Without faith or trust, the sinner cannot be saved. Right. Does that mean we're saved by faith or trust? So consider a person dying of a terminal illness and the doctor has a cure that will put the cancer into remission, but the patient does not trust the doctor and refuses to allow the doctor to administer the cure. Will they survive or die of the cancer? Die. So faith or trust in the doctor is necessary. How about this, though? A uh, uh, Patient dying of cancer trusts their doctor completely, but the doctor has no cure. They have no remedy. Will they survive? So, no, they won't. the patient must trust the doctor and permit him to apply the remedy, but the doctor must have a remedy that heals. So our faith or trust is required in order to access, receive, or partake of what God provides to us through Christ. But our faith does not provide the remedy. It only receives it. Thus, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Substance, the Greek, hypostasis, first half hypo, as in hypoglycemic, and hypotensive, it means low or under. And was translated to sub, as in subway, or submarine, low or under. And stasis, when something's in stasis, it's still, it doesn't move, it's, it's solid, it's reliable, it, it stands, and so it's, it has a stance. And so it was translated to substance, and we translate that into English as faith is our understanding. And understanding has two definitions, and they both apply to our faith. Our comprehension, we have to comprehend the truth. The truth, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It dispels the lies. It wins us to trust. And then, once we have that understanding of who God is and our condition and what he can provide for us, we enter into an understanding with God. Both apply. And the understanding is, I'm sick and dying, and you have a remedy and I understand if I trust you and put my life in your hands, you'll heal me. That's our understanding. That's our faith. Faith is our understanding with God. So faith is required, but faith does not heal. It is the avenue through which we connect with God to receive the remedy which heals. And that faith is an intelligent, enlightened understanding of God that's in its solution. So faith is required. It's one of the things required, but it's not the actual agency. What about Grace. Is grace required for our salvation? We're looking at this covenant, breaking it down. What is required in this in this agreement? Fa- faith and trust is re- but what about grace? Is grace required? Yes, God gives grace. If God is not gracious, if God does not act in grace toward us or extend grace toward us, then he would never have sent Jesus. And we wouldn't have been able to be saved. Grace is essential. So yes, grace is required. Without the graciousness of God extending grace, we could not be saved. But God is always gracious. God is never ungracious. Even before humankind sinned, God was still God of grace. But sin required an action from God, an expression of grace, an outworking of grace that was never before needed. And that action, that intervention, is God's work. God's favor, God's beneficence, God's beneficial activity to provide the remedy or cure to our sin condition, God's initiative, God's energy, this is his grace. We have a need that never existed in years before, and God intervenes to resolve or provide for the need, that's God's grace. This activity, this intervention, this act of working of God's power to heal us from sin is grace. And it is not earned by us. The remedy is not procured by us. It is not worked out by us. It is not bought, paid, earned. We in no way are receiving it as compensation for some activity that we have done. So in that sense, it's unmerited or unearned grace. It initiates with God in the heart of God who is gracious and loving. But because of who we are to God, this is a big distinction, this unmerited favor gets misunderstood a lot. It's unmerited in the sense of the fact that we didn't earn, pay, work for it. It's completely free of God's initiative and energy. But because of who we are to God, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We merit it as objects of his love, not as works that we perform. We merit it as your child merits your sacrificial intervention to run into traffic and save them when they were being disobedient and playing in the street. They don't merit it because of their behavior. They merit it because of who they are. And so we don't earn it. We don't work for it. We don't deserve it by our condition or actions or behavior. We only merit it because we are his creation and the objects of his love. So faith is required grace is required what about forgiveness is forgiveness required of course course, if god refused to forgive then we couldn't be saved so yes forgiveness is required but was forgiveness from god ever an obstacle was god ever unforgiving No, and is God's forgiveness, the forgiveness from the supreme creator of all things. Is that a legal act in a courtroom, registered in a book, or is it a personal action from his heart toward us, his attitude toward us? Did Jesus forgive his murderers at the cross? And did Jesus have authority on earth to forgive sins as he previously did when he healed the paralytic? So that you might know, I have authority on earth to forgive sins. So did the person who has authority to forgive sins forgive his crucifiers? Yes. Were they saved? No, because they didn't accept it. Ooh, interesting. The legal authority has forgiven them, but they're not saved. But forgiveness is required because if God is unforgiving, then he doesn't extend healing to us. We have to accept it. Yes. And why were they not saved? Because the forgiveness freely offered by Christ was not received into their heart. Had they received the forgiveness, what would have then happened in their heart? They would have been convicted of sin. They would have repented. And they would have been reborn with new hearts of grateful love and appreciation for God's grace and forgiveness to them. But they rejected the forgiveness, and their hearts remained hearted, even though God was forgiving toward them. God's personal forgiveness, does God's personal forgiveness, and Christ's forgiveness on the cross heal the damage caused by sin? Yes. It's necessary because God doesn't provide anything for us for our salvation if he's unforgiving. So God, yes, forgives us. That's, that's, that's perp, perp, absolutely necessary. And we need to receive it. But something more is required than his personal forgiveness. Is erasure of historic records in a court setting in heaven necessary to save sinners? No. Have you ever heard someone teach that? There's a, I don't know, a court, maybe it's called a a safe space, you know, a sanctuary in heaven? (laughs) (laughs) And and in that... And in that safe space, we have a, a safe protector. Maybe you might call him a mediator who's interceding in your behalf uh, in, in the records to erase any uh, dastardly deeds that you might have done so that you can't be punished for. Uh, have you ever heard anything along those lines? Is erasure of historic records necessary to save sinners? The answer is no. 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 Historical, if we erase historical records, do, do erasing the records of what happened actually change and heal the hearts of sinners? If we took all the Bibles on Earth and erased and, and destroyed them all, so we erased the record of David's sin, or, or King Saul's let's think of King Saul who, rem, who, who committed suicide and remained in rebellion and we erased the record. Nobody now knows the record. Does that mean King Saul is now saved? It changed his heart because we erased the records. No, erasing records don't heal sinners. It only makes people uninformed of what the sin problem is and what it does, and God's graciousness is an act to heal, and thus makes us vulnerable to be deceived again. So this is not a requirement. It's not part of the contract. The covenant is not to erase records. But the Bible says he will erase our sins and remember them no more. Yes, he does. He erases them from... Heart, mind, and character. He erases sin out of your hearts and minds and recreates you and writes his law in your hearts and minds. And then when he looks at you, he doesn't remember the old infection because the infection's gone. He sees the beauty of a son. So when he looks at you, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ, not because you're a, a rotten apple coated in candy, but because righteousness of Christ lives in you. This is the real gospel message that has been completely obscured by the false legal system that is taught in so many churches. So no, uh, erasing historic records is not required. So you're saying that it's not erasing it from his mind, it's a, it's erasing it from our heart. That's right. That's right. Because I always thought of it, growing up, that it was... Re- Oh, I'm going to erase this from my mind and the books. You know, if you read the scripture widely, you'll discover that when we get to the new he- heaven and new earth, we sing a song of our experience. We go around, and some have uh, red, red around the bottom of their robe, which are the martyrs who died for Christ. And we have a story to tell of our deliverance from sin. And as we tell that story that Jesus said about the woman caught in adultery as, he, as she anointed his feet with the oil, those who are forgiven much love much. We remember how sick we were and we are overwhelmed for eternity with the grace of God and how much he's done to heal us from the sickness of sin. If he erases the memories of those experiences, he takes the love and loyalty and devotion out of our hearts. He's not going to do it. And Why do you think this theory is in Christianity? Because Satan doesn't want us to have eternal love, appreciation, and devotion to God. He wants us to fear him and be afraid that if God were to be aware, and so we really have Jesus pulling the wool over the Father's eyes. That's what's going on here. We have a heavenly uh, deception going on. You're really still corrupt, but Jesus stands between the Father, and the Father doesn't see how corrupt you are, only sees his son. And the Father then makes a ruling that because he sees his son, he's going to declare that you're really righteous. Even though you're still not righteous, the Father's going to declare it because the Father's been tricked by Jesus to not know how bad you are. That's the complete fraud. And you've got a God you can't trust, and, and so the rest of eternity you're afraid. I never want to be uh, uh, before uh, heaven without an intercessor because it scares me to go before God because, because I know I only got there because, because I was hiding how bad I really am. It's sick. It's completely sick. And do you understand why the church is completely paralyzed into, into freeing people? Because they're presenting a view of God that is completely corrupt, that you can't trust, that you've got to have all these theories to hide you and protect you from, because if he were to actually see you, he he'd hurt you, rather than the truth of Scripture, that God is for you. He did not spare his son, but gave him up. How will he not along with him give you all things? God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. The reality of Scripture is that God sees, search me and see the wicked way in me, created me a clean heart, O God. He is our creator and recreator, and only those who come to him and trust and say, I give you freedom, into my heart, fix the brokenness. That's the faith that we just talked about that's required for the covenant. If you don't trust him, you don't participate in the covenant. And so we have a fraudulent legal covenant that people go, I claim the blood of Jesus as my legal payment in the docks of heaven, and God, you are required by law to accept his payment and declare me to be righteous, even though we're not, because I don't trust you, to actually see me. It's fraud. And millions are claiming this legal security while they remain hidden from God and won't let God into their heart because they're terrified if he actually sees their wickedness, he'll kill them. What does it mean when he says rem- he will remember our sins no more? So if you had a child and your child um, stole a cookie and lied about it, and six years old, first grader, if you, do, does somebody have to do something to you to keep you from killing that child? Because sin requires punishment, and the punishment is death, and you want to be a good mother, and you want to actually be accountable and enforce the law, and God's law is the eternal law, and they've just broken it by, by lying and stealing. Uh, two commandments were broken, so you need to kill them, right? Does somebody have to intercede to get mercy and grace and love from you? Or do you immediately recognize the the patterns of of? of deviation from god's law of love and you in love want to intercede with the child to bring them to repentance so in love you don't seek punitive punishment punishment punitive to act vengeance upon you seek to discipline disciple teach and so you discipline the child in love to bring them to repentance god disciplines those he loves right Is that what you do yeah, yeah. And, and so you discipline them in love because you love them nobody had to intercede to get you to do that and the child repents and, mommy, I mean, I'm sorry. I'll never take a cookie without permission again. I'll never lie. And, and, you, and it's genuine. There's a real repentance. And, and you've already forgiven. Your heart's already forgiven. So there's, at that point, reconciliation. And there's hugs and kisses all around. And the next day, when your child comes home from school and they run up to the sidewalk and they say, Mommy, Mommy, do you go, Oh, here comes that little liar of mine. <laughs> is that what you think? Or is it forgotten? Once reconciliation occurs, it's no longer in the heart. It's not between you anymore. God, the healer, does not have to address it to remove it. It's forgotten. That doesn't mean we have amnesia. It's it's gone. It's out of the relationship. And that's what it means. When he erases it from our hearts, he doesn't have to think about it anymore. Doesn't require his attention. But until it's out of our hearts... It requires his attention. Does that, does that answer your question? If he erased it from our memories, it would virtually guarantee a future rebellion. Yep, and we do it again. Yes, okay. So, uh, erasure is not required. Is an adjustment in God's attitude required to save sinners? I mean, an understanding. Something, maybe you've never heard anything like this before. Something like assuaging his wrath. Propitiating his anger. Is anything like this required to save us? When Adam sinned, did God get changed? Or is he the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow? He's the same. Did Adam, the condition of humankind, get changed? So, the intervention to save man does not need to be done to God. He's the same. Whatever the intervention is, it has to happen in humankind. That's where the action has to take place, whatever it is. So this idea that that the blood of Jesus has to be applied to God, Jesus has to present the sacrifice, uh, 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 this type of concept is completely fraudulent, again, because of the false legal system that has infected the minds of human beings. Is a legal payment to the law or the lawgiver required in order for the covenant of salvation to be realized? in order for God to save us. Again, God didn't get changed. Did his law get changed? No, No, his law didn't get changed either. Adam got changed, and he no longer operated in harmony with the law. And thus, don't change the law, don't do something to the law, don't pay the law, don't appease the law. You have to actually put the sinner back in harmony with the law, so you write the law where? And that's the new covenant. I'll put my law in your heart. I will give you motives that are law-abiding that are love and truth and freedom you will be transformed in the inner person i will heal and restore you back into harmony with how i built life to operate that is what's required there's no there is no payment to the law so what is actually required that well what is the basis of life okay i like where you're going with that and god is so god is the basis of life He's the originator. He has life original, unborrowed, underwired. He dispersed his own self, his own energy, his own person in creating the universe. It comes from him. All things were created by him. Without him, nothing was made. They're sustained by him. Thus, he's constantly dispersing his energy in the string vibrations of the quantum realm that, cont- that continues to sustain all life in the universe. Only in connection with Him is their life. God is the source of all life. And the design protocol for all that, somebody's already said it, is love. Love. Love is the design protocol. It's the action. It's the energy. It's the system. It's how it's built. It's the law. The law of love is the law of life. And this law originates in God, emanates from Him, and constantly flows out from Him, sustaining all things. Our current life on earth right now is due to grace. It is due to God acting, taking an action that was never required before to create an artificial bubble of reality where earth is carved out from the rest of God's universe in a way temporally or quantum wise that we can't fully comprehend but we are shielded from god's life giving glory that used to bathe this planet and adam and eve used to radiate uh... robes of life we're shielded from it because if we were in the full presence of god in our current state we could not tolerate it be overwhelming and crushing to us so god has created an artificial bubble of reality this is grace to allow for us to have a continued existence in a world of sin, for the plan of salvation to be realized and restore us back to unity with God so that we can one day see him face to face, for we shall be like him. We will stand in that presence when the Ancient of Days takes his throne and rivers of fire come out from before him, and millions stand there. we will be some of those millions standing in it. And this earth will not will need a sun or moon to light the place because... God's presence will be its light. That's the reality of the rest of the universe that we are in an artificial bubble disconnected from. So imagine somebody on artificial life support. This planet and you and I are on artificial life support while God does spiritual heart surgery on us. To take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh to circumcise the heart by the spirit to write his law in our hearts and minds and erase the sin principles of fear and selfishness to bring us back into at one minute unity there we live in harmony with him again and then he comes and takes us home and we live again in a universe that is no longer shielded from his infinite self sin is so life originates from god that's where it originates sin is transgression of his law, which is the design protocols of life that he, that emanate from him and sustain his universe, and it results in death. It causes death. The wages of sin is death. Romans six twenty three. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. James one fifteen. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. Galatians six eight. Salvation, the covenant requires that the law of life be restored into the heart-mind of the living being so they can live in God's presence again. That's what's required. So salvation of the sinner requires that we must, and here are the metaphors of Scripture, be reborn... Have a new heart, right spirit. Have the law written on the heart. Have the mind of Christ. Die to fear and selfishness and be resurrected to love and truth. Have the heart of stone removed, the heart of a tender heart put in. Have circumcision of the heart. Die to self and have Christ live within us. So it's no longer I that live. All the metaphors teaching the same thing. It's transformational, regenerational. We get new motives that are in harmony with God's design for life. So this is the covenant. We have a terminal condition inherited from Adam that we did not choose which results in eternal death unless it's remedied. We cannot procure the remedy, so God sent Jesus to do that for us. God covenants, or agrees, to take up the terminal condition upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us. With all of its various weaknesses and capacities for temptation, he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin in order to destroy the death-causing principle that infects us and restore God's law of life, the law of love, into the species human, thereby saving humanity, the species, and simultaneously providing the remedy that any individual human can freely receive and also be healed. So God agrees to provide us the cure, and we agree to trust him and follow his directions. I love this historic quote. I'm going to share several quotes with you now. That I think... and I, this, one of, this is one of my favorites. It might even be my very favorite that I'm going to sh- share first. I've shared it probably a hundred times in here. You all should have it memorized. I do. You all should have it I not, not because you saw it. But I've read it so many times that you should have it memorized because you heard it so many times. But it's one of my favorites that actually in one paragraph describes this whole process in one paragraph. It's out of a book, and I just agree, and I think it's just so lovely in its description. It's out of a book called The Desire of Ages, page 762. And I'm going to read a little bit and then unpack it. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character, and this man has not to give. What does the law require? A righteous life, is this righteous life that the law requires required in the sinner? That the sinner has to have a righteous life? Or is this righteous life required as a payment to God to appease him so he won't kill you for your unrighteous life? Well, the, the rest of the paragraph is going to unpack this for you. But understand, people read this with the human law model, and they, were, they read that, yes, yes, the, the, the law requires a, a righteous life, and you don't have one, and somebody had to live that one, and then they had to be killed in your place, because law also requires death penalty for breaking the law, and therefore the righteous life was the sacrificial death of Jesus to pay the legal penalty to the heavenly magistrate who killed him so that he wouldn't kill you. Do you understand how fraudulent that is? Completely corrupt. It's all based on the... The lie that God's law functions like human law rather than God as creator, which you were to worship him who made the heavens and the earth. Continuing on with this, um, with this quote, next sentence or two. He says, He, uh, man, he cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ coming to earth as man lived, notice, as man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. Hebrews 5 9 says, quote, Once Christ was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him, unquote. Hebrews 5, 9. Once he was made perfect, wasn't he always perfect? No, he was always sinless. He was always sinless. Bible perfection is not about sinlessness. Lucifer was sinless at one point. Adam and Eve were sinless at one point, but they were not perfect. They corrupted themselves and became sinners and imperfect. Bible perfection is about maturity of character. Understand, character cannot be created by God. God can create sinless beings, but character is developed by the individual choices of the intelligent being. Lucifer corrupted his character. Adam and Eve corrupted their characters. We're born infected with sin and have no capacity to develop in our strength a sinless character, a perfect character. Jesus came as a human being, tempted in every way like we are, yet he chose to develop a perfect human character. And in so doing, in real humanity... Using a human brain, exercising human abilities, he developed a perfect character. Human abilities as a human, trusting his father and receiving power as every human does from his father. Of my own self, I do nothing. His power to be victorious came from his trust in his father that you and I can access. That same power in trust to live victorious, to be transformed. And this is why, and, and in so doing, at the cross, he's tempted to, by the fear, by the selfishness, by the, the pull-looking Gethsemane with the overwhelming human emotions agonizing to pull him to act in self-interest. This is a survival drive. This is the infection of sin. And he is tempted by it. It's not just external. He felt the pull. And on the cross, Satan uses his agents to inflame it. Multiple people kept saying to him, come down on the cross. Save yourself. We'll believe in you then. Save yourself. Please, please act in self-interest. Act selfishly. Save yourself. This was the temptation over and over again. And no one can take my life, Jesus said. I give it or lay it down freely. Every time temptation to act selfishly comes, Christ exercises his internal authority, his will, to choose to give, to love, the law of love and action. Thus at the cross he destroys the infection of fear and selfishness. In the humanity he he took up, picking up humanity damaged by Adam. He carries it to the cross. He purges the infection. He establishes God's law in his humanity, and thus he rises again. And this is how he was able to predict his resurrection. He knew and understood the cause of death. He knew and understood God's design for life and how life was built. He knew and understood that his successful mission would eradicate the death principle and restore God's law of life into the humanity that he had taken up, and he would rise again. So his prediction that he would rise again was not prophetic in that he had God open the windows of time, and he looked into the future, and he saw his rising. That's not what happened. He didn't see through the portals of time. He predicted it in the same way I can predict what will happen if I let go of this. He understood the law, and the law of love is the law of life as as reliably as gravity works. And so he rose again, and Peter, in his sermon in Acts, says to them, You crucified him, but in Acts 2.24, Peter says it was impossible for the grave to hold him. Impossible, because the law of love had been restored, and death could not hold him. So, can you want the quote? These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. He offers us a holy life and a perfect character. That's what he offers us—the free gift, holy life, perfect character. He offers it to you. Here's—I've developed it. I've—I've I've achieved it. I've—I've I've, I've worked it out for you. I will offer it to you freely, not in some legal way applied in a registry in heaven, but actual within you. It's real. It's literal. Thus, you can say when you experience it what Paul said in Galatians two twenty. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That's real. Or you can be like those Revelation describes who are translated in the end, who are saved in the end, Revelation 12, 11. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Notice the description. They don't love their life so much as to shrink from death. What principle causes us to shrink from death? death. It's the survival drive, the selfishness. Protect me, kill or be killed. They don't have that so much anymore. It's not that they're not tempted. It's not that they don't have those feelings. It's that it has no control over them anymore, that they love God and others more than self, and they can act as the great men of God did. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Daniel did not love his life so much as to shrink from death. The survival, I'm sure that they weren't going, oh, this looks like a fun ride at the park. (laughs) I'm sure that they were going. I don't want to go through this. This is frightening and scary, but I trust God with my life, and I I do not love my life so much as to shrink from death to do what's wrong. These are the sealed. These are the righteous. These are those who have new heart. These are who have the law written in their heart and mind, where they love God and others more, and love casts out fear. Continuing on with the quote, His life stands for the life of men. Yes, he's the second Adam. He is the new head of the human species. Adam was to be the head of the whole species. He abdicated that. And Jesus took up humanity broken and damaged and became our new representative head. And thus he is the vine and we are the branches. That's right. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, not through a payment not through a legal application, not through a blood sacrifice. Our our remission of sins is through God's forbearance. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. Where is this application? of Christ's victory being applied in this author's perspective. In the believer, not in a courtroom in heaven, not in record books, not to God, not to the law. To us. This is actual, it's literal, it's transformational, it's healing, it's restorative, it's not legal in a courtroom. And then the final sentence of this paragraph God can and then quotes Romans 3:26 God can be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus Notice that justifying in this quote where's the action happening in a courtroom in the heart justifying is setting the heart right putting the sinner right fixing the damage in us restoring us back to unity with God he can be just he can be just and the justifier of those who believe it's not a legal process in a court and it never was that's all fraud another quote out of a review and herald April 5 1898 says but the law requires that the soul itself be pure and the mind holy that the thoughts and feelings may be in accordance with the standard of love and righteousness do you know what the thoughts and feelings combined make up Character. Your character. Your thoughts and feelings combined make up your character. And this author says that your thoughts, it says that the law requires the soul be pure, mind holy, that the thoughts and feelings, your character, be in accordance with the standard of love and righteousness. Our moral character, so the law is written where again? In our hearts and minds. That's the reality. And then one more. Um, from A New Life, page 32, same author. It says, the divine law requires us to love God supremely and our neighbor as ourself. Well, you can get that from scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. That's the divine law. It's a requirement, according to this author. Do you see how, if you understand what that actually means functionally and operationally, that this law can be no other law but design law? Can you get love, which is a requirement, according to this author, or according to Jesus, can you get love through legislation, through imposition, through threat, through coercion, through punishing those who don't love you? No. You cannot. It cannot function like human law. Yet all of Christianity teaches God government runs like a human government. This is pagan. It's Roman infection. It's beastly. It's 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 wrong. And this is why the church is paralyzed. Until we come back to worship the Creator and understand His laws or design laws, and that His methods are higher than our methods, and that His methods are the methods of life that restore in us and transform us to live a godly life, we're going to be um, powerless in this world. So there's a covenant, an agreement with God, and... Was the covenant that God made with Abraham different than the covenant with Adam in Eden? Or was it simply a subset of that, an, an outworking, a continuation of that same covenant? In other words, in Eden, God covenanted that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, a Messiah's coming to save humanity. That was the covenant. I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to send, send a Messiah. And the covenant to Abraham is that your seed is going to. So this is just the acting out and, and, and focusing our attention on the hu- branch of the human family through which the promise in Eden will be realized. It'll be through Abraham's descendants that my promise in Eden will be carried out. And your descendants can be my helpers in this region to prepare the world for meeting your Savior when he comes, the Advent. This was the, this was the promise. It was only the outworking of the same covenant. It's no different. Was the covenant to Adam provided to save, uh, to provide a savior, to save only one ethnic group, or to provide salvation to all human beings? What about the covenant to Abraham? Was it just for his descendants, or was it for all human beings? So, in my view, if you look at the various promises to Abraham, and there's 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 multiple ones that God keeps reinforcing this covenant to abraham in my view god has interwoven the larger covenant of grace with the promise of the seed that will save the species and how abraham be father of many nations this is a larger worldwide promise he's woven it together with the local promise that your uh, descendants will be my helpers to carry out the biggest, bigger promise. So there's two promises: there's one big one and a smaller one. The smaller one is, in order to carry out the big one, I need the Messiah to be born, and in order to carry out the big one, I need a people who will work with me to, uh, for, to be the avenue for that Messiah. Your children are going to be that people, and it would really work great if your, if your people would actually be the, the um, repository for my inspired word that can educate people about the coming Messiah, and that your people can carry out in theater and and act out the lessons that can, can prepare the world, and you guys can practice my principles and be a light on a hill that draws the world to reach the Messiah. So there was a smaller promise or covenant that I will bless your children, and they will be a great nation, And but it was all part of the larger promise for Messiah to come. And you can read um, these various covenants in Genesis twelve, seven, thirteen, chapter 13, verse 14 through 17, and seventeen four through 8. And you'll hear these things woven together. And so uh, when I paraphrased Genesis in 13, I wrote it this way, starting in verse 14 through 17. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Look around you in every direction, north, south, east, and west, the whole earth, all that you see. I will give you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants beyond counting, like trying to count the dust of the earth. Go ahead, walk the land that I'm giving you. T-. So my view is that this is part of the promise of a new earth. Who are heirs according to the promise, and they inherit the earth, not just the little land of Palestine. The little land of Palestine was promised just to that group to be the avenue for the Messiah. So that the bigger promise to Abraham that his descendants, those that are his by uh, uh, like like him in faith, will inherit the whole planet. This will be what God has really promised for everlasting covenant. So, the covenant, God's responsibility, to provide the remedy. What's ours? Our responsibility. To trust. Yes, have faith. And obey. What's the obey mean? Cooperate. Cooperate. Oh, I like that one. Mm-hmm. Follow. I like that one. The word in the Greek for obey is hy- hypookue. Um, the same, first half of the word is the same that we had for faith, hypo. It means under, or low, or humble, or down, okay? QA, we get acoustical from, or acoustic. What does that mean? Hearing. Hearing. And so Bible obedience is a humble willingness to listen. That's what Bible obedience is. When you think of obedience, are you thinking... I'm humbly willing to listen and be educated and enlightened and redirected and have my ideas corrected. Uh, Is that what you think of? Or do you think of task performance? We were brought up anyway. Task performance is not the primary meaning of Bible obedience. This is why Jesus constantly said to them, hearing though they do not hear, seeing though they do not see. And have you heard, uh, we we use this somewhat in English still, when you're talking to somebody and you go, do you hear me? Do you hear what I'm saying? Are you listening? Okay. What we're trying to say is not, uh, do you hear the sounds passing through the room, hitting your tympanic membrane? What we're saying is, are you comprehending? Are you understanding? Bible obedience is about lovers of truth. Hearts that say, I'm a finite being. This is my current comprehension of what's going on in my life and the world around me. But Lord, you're an infinite God, and I have a loving desire and longing desire to be led in the paths of righteousness. Lead me. Unfold to me the truths that I need to understand. I am, remember Samuel? Little boy, Samuel. Eli. And what did he finally have to say? I didn't call you Speak, Lord, your servant heareth. heareth. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. That's when he became obedient, started listening. Okay? And then, of course, as we listen, we choose, after listening and understanding, to apply, to align ourselves to the best of our ability, to carry out what God has called us to do. But it's not primarily about the task performance. Bible obedience is primarily about the heart's attitude toward God and the intention in your response to those revelations from God Remember the war between God and Satan is fought where? In the mind. Heart and minds. It's heart and mind stuff. That's the battlefield. 2 Corinthians 10. And Satan's weapons, lies, That's we all we all know that one. But if you how many how many of you read my six-part series on the powers of Satan? Okay, there, you get gold stars. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> well, my blog series—I encourage you to read it—a six-part series uh, on the powers of Satan. There six powers that he, uh, the Bible, describes him as having. He is the—he is the uh, father of lies. He has the power of lies. Uh, he is uh, the great Satan or the accuser. He is the power of accusation. Uh, he uh, has the power of imperial law and human governments. He imposes rules and he coerces. And, the, and he's the prince of this world. Uh, Mammon is his, so he has human economics, which are all artificial. If you haven't figured out how artificial our economics are during this whole COVID thing, do you understand? I, I've heard that 25% of the currency in circulation has just been created in the last year out of nothing. Understand when they give these uh, these PPP loans out for businesses, what are they giving out? They're not giving out anything. They're not giving out gold. They're not giving out silver. They're not giving out property. They're not giving out anything. They're giving ones and zeros on a computer screen. That's all they're giving. It's completely artificial and arbitrarily made up and assigned, and we all just accept it, but it's made up. It has no inherent value, whatever. It's completely arbitrary, yet people are jealous for it, they fight for it. They, they seek it. So Satan's one of, his, one of his human economics buying, selling, owning. Temptation. He is the devil and he tempts and he causes us to sin and, and then inflames fear and, and, and uh, selfishness and, and division in society. And he is the, the destroyer, of the, uh, of the, has the power of death. So these are his powers. These are his weapons. What are the weapons of God that we defend with? Truth, the sword of truth the word of god love liberty we present truth and love lead people free faith a faith established on truth and evidence and how reality works and we we uh, put out the flaming arrows of the devil with our faith with our trust in god that faith is exampled in daniel and and uh and again, in the in the three worthies, their faith was tested there. But their faith in God was such that those assaults that incited fear and tempted them to act in self-interest. And and uh, you can imagine out there on the plains of Dura, um, you know, uh, you and I are out there, uh, Tina, and uh, we look at each other and go, uh, we can't bow to this aisle. Can't do it. No way. Fiery furnaces, though, not on the horizon. Mm-mm. Hey, when the music plays, let's tie our shoes man looks on the outward appearance the Lord looks on the heart he knows I'm not bowing to this idol I'm just tying my shoe I can't help it if these people think that I'm bowing to the idol that's on them the Lord knows better how many of us play that game why? because our faith is weak we don't really trust him with the outcome we've got to control the future we've got to make it go the way we want it to go so we're constantly scheming if they'd have gone that way, I'm 100% sure, and there probably were some Jews that did that that day. And I'm sure, I'm sure not all of them were lost. I'm sure God was gracious to them, and he still loved them, and he understood that they were frightened. But he had three he could trust. And through their faithfulness, he was able to reach Nebuchadnezzar that would not have been reached otherwise. But they had to confront their fear and the fiery darts of the devil, which was extinguished by faith. So we have the the, the weapon of faith, but that requires an intelligent and enlightened and understanding. We have an understanding with God. We understand him and we have an understanding with him. What he'll do, what, what we'll do. Our responsibility in governance of self to do what's right. His responsibility to take care of the future and how it turns out. That's our understanding. So many people that I have in my office that struggle with anxiety and anxiety issues are struggling with anxieties that are nothing to do with today. They're anxieties of the future. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen with my finances? What's going to happen with my job? What's going to happen with my relationship? What's going to happen with my kids? It's all future stuff for for many of them. We also have other weapons we can use, such as spending time in relationship with God on a daily basis, talking to him, connecting with him. We call that prayer and Bible study and meditating on God's designs, his laws, nature, what Christ accomplished, and then humbly listening, quiet time, be still and know that I am God. Because where do we find God? Elijah, after his trial, and he ran away because he was a little bit shaken in his faith, went into a cave and there was a great earthquake. There was a great fire. There was a great wind. God wasn't in any of them. And there is the sound of the smallest whisper. The still small voice. Be still and know. How many of us are so busy? TV, music, just busyness that we never be still and know. Never be still and listen. Be still and know. That's where we, that's where we hear this. The, and why is it always be still and know? There's a reason why. Always be still and know. What is it God wants from you? He wants your love and trust. But how about if he overwhelms you with thunder, fire, a great wind, an earthquake. We believe the fire came down, consumed at the Mount Carmel. Elijah just did that. And all the people said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Amen. Amen. And then they were faithful and loyal after that time, right? Was their heart actually changed? No. No. It's always the still small voice because he can never change the heart with might and power. That's why it says in Zechariah, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. Well, let me jump real quick into, let's see, Tuesday's lesson. It focuses on the change from a- of Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham, and talks about the power of a name, and talks about God's name. And it's very, I would not have time to do it today, but I encourage you to go and just look up on a, on a internet uh, site the various names for God in Scripture. It's quite interesting. You will notice that all of his names are designed to reveal something about his character. He's an infinite God, and he has many attributes, and his names try to inform us about about him. But there are some that come up repeatedly in Scripture, and I want you to be aware of some of the ways God is addressed or identified in Scripture, and they're always used over and over again to separate him from all the false gods. And the number one that comes up the most important is he's the creator. Over and over again, he is the creator. All the false gods cannot create. That's a separate, it's a demarcation. But that's not the only one that comes up. That's the only attribute. God is also identified as eternal. Having life original, unborrowed, and under. uh, All false gods have a a starting point. Even Lucifer himself is a created being, when if he tries to present himself as a god, he has a beginning. God has no beginning. He's eternal. He's an eternal being. God is creator. God's eternal. God is forgiving. says in Isaiah, he freely pardons, forgiving. He's a forgiving God. All false gods require payment, appeasement, works of some kind, an offering to be brought in order to merit or earn the grace of the God. God is truth. All the other gods lie. But God is infinite truth, and he's always the source of truth. God is love. All all, All the other gods are selfish. In some way. Power monitoring. Ruling over. Uh, And you'll see this, and you'll see it happening in the world today. The systems of the world, which are Satan's kingdoms, always seek an elite few. Satan sought to rise over and take the throne to rule over the heavens. Jesus did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself all the way to the form of a servant to the cross in order to uplift the masses. Satan's kingdom always have a few elites that rule over and exploit the masses, God's kingdom have those with the greatest abilities, powers, and resources sacrificing themselves to build up the masses. Mm -hmm. It's completely opposite. And what you see happening in the world today, if you have any discernment skills, whatever, you see the movement of Satan at work. It is a movement of elites propagandizing to damage people's minds so they gain more power to control you rather than working to uplift you. But of course they do it like all evil methodologies do by claiming they're here to help you. They're doing it for your good, to help you, because they care while they continue to injure. Oh, I wish I had time. We have two minutes. I could go off on some things happening in society right now to show you that the cause of the problem is by those... Uh, the cause of the problem we see in our society right now is being done by those that are claiming they 're here with a solution, and the solution will actually infantilize you more, diminish your autonomy more, make you more dependent on the authorities more, take more of your liberties from you but it's all pro- but you 're willing to do it because you 're afraid that if you don 't something bad's going to happen to you, whether it 's financial or, or physical or health wise or something but they 're a problem they want to save you from, whether it be oh guns gun violence. Their policies, the ones who want to take the guns out of society, for example, their very policies are the ones that are causing the gun violence. Mm-hmm. And is purposely causing the violence in order to incite your fear so that they can take your guns. And the reason the founders in our nation gave us the guns in the documents was to, so that you as a citizenry can protect yourself from the government. Amen. That was its purpose. Right. So just... Just watch the dynamics at work here. It's contrary to... Not, not that guns are part of God's kingdom. I'm just showing the methods. The methods at work. Yes. You were given inalienable rights by God. And the laws of our Constitution were designed to restrain the powers from taking your rights, from encroaching upon them. Not to give you rights. The government does not give you rights. You've got those from God. But the powers that be are designed to restrain... The church, the dark ages from taking your rights, the government from taking your rights, and the aristocracy from taking your rights. The elites, that's where the power is supposed to be at the people. And what's happened in society, if you have any discernment skill at all, is that your rights are being infringed upon all over the place for the purpose of derailing your mind and undermining your capacity for autonomy, self-governance, and discernment. And the, And the elites... The aristocracy is not Dukes and Earls today. The aristocracy are the big corporations. They're the ones who are controlling and directing. And they don't want the people to have power. Why don't they want the people to have power? Because we'd break them up like we did AT&T back in the 70s. That's why. And so what do they do? Because they don't want the, the, the massive people are not wealthy elites. So what do they do? They incite racial divisions Mm -hmm. and incite racism to fracture the population so that they can prevent the population from uniting on the question of class and wealth. Mm -hmm. This is what's happening, it's very corrupt. But it's exact, and they want, and they're doing this so they can break down national boundaries because these big corporations don't want just to sell their stuff in one country. They can't get more power that way and they can't get more money that way. They want global access without any tariffs and any boundaries so that they can have all their products being sold worldwide. That's why they can make the maximum amount of profits. That's why they want to break down national boundaries and they want to prevent, um, the people of the United States from uniting and reclaiming the power that was supposed to be our from the constitution we won't win this i'm going to tell you in in a worldly way we won't win this in politics i'm not saying this to be political i'm saying this to educate and give you discernment so you can see the movements afoot and see the powers of human economics the powers of lies the powers of accusation the six powers of satan at work in the world so that you can come out and be apart from that and be part of god's people and begin practicing his methods and stop fighting in the political systems that are not going to get better well, I just went over three minutes, so let's close with prayer, and then we will come back in about uh, three to five minutes. As soon as we can get a, a, get it all done, and we'll go live with our question answer time. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a an infinite God of love who gives us genuine freedom and speaks to us in the still small voice. You never use the, the the power to intimidate us and control us and force us. That you love us and you want to restore in us your perfect law of love while retaining our unique individuality, refined and purified to give you glory. We ask now that you will uh, finish your work in our hearts, seal us to your kingdom, and and make us effective in taking this message, final message to the world, that you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.